Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. Today, our episode is focused on monkeypox. How could we, in the middle of a global pandemic with COVID, have another infectious disease traveling the world? And so I thought it'd be great to invite my friend, my colleague, and certainly infectious disease expert, Dr. Esther Freeman, to join us on Dialogues. Esther, welcome. Thanks so much, Stephen. I'm delighted to be here. Dr. Freeman is an expert in infectious disease and dermatology. That's what her career focuses on. We in dermatology know her from her greatest hits as being on the COVID task force for the American Academy of Dermatology and is now on the monkeypox task force. And so I'm excited to chat with her a little bit more today about monkeypox and all that we should be doing as dermatologists to think about it. So just to kick things off, Esther, do you mind giving us a little bit of background on monkeypox itself? Because it's certainly not a novel virus. It's something that's been around before. So what should we know going into this new infectious agent that we're thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. So monkeypox has been around, unlike SARS-CoV-2, for a a relatively long time. And so we do know about it as a pox virus. And back in 1958 was actually the first time that it was found as an orthopox virus, similar but distinct to smallpox. Despite the fact that it was first discovered in captive monkeys, which is why it's called monkeypox, the name is actually a misnomer because subsequently it's actually been seen in a lot of diverse mammals, such as squirrels, rats, mice, and other kind of small forest mammals. So it's really not clear that monkeys are truly kind of the primary driver of this kind of type of zoonotic transmission. For humans, the first case was described actually in the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, in 1970. And since then, we've seen kind of sporadic outbreaks, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa, and we've seen it potentially in travelers who have gone through that area. And that's the only region really where it has been endemic both in Central and Western African countries. But there have not been really significant outbreaks, you know, a few scattered outbreaks in other countries, notably in the United States. There was one in 2003 where we had 47 cases of monkeypox um, across six states in the Midwest. And that was related to uh, pet prairie dogs that had been exposed to imported animals from Ghana. I believe it was actually a large Ghanaian rat that started that particular outbreak. But this is very different. Here, we're really seeing community spread across the world. Right. And so if you don't mind, you know, everything I've read talks about two different strains of monkeypox, the very different kind of case fatality rate between the two. What do we seem to be dealing with here in the U.S. at least? Yeah, absolutely. So indeed, there are two different clades of monkeypox. There is a Western African clade and a Central African clade. It appears that what's circulating right now in these global outbreaks is the Western African clade, which has a lower case fatality rate. So the general case fatality rate that's reported kind of for both clades overall is somewhere between 1% and 11% in the general population. However, if you look at the more recent outbreaks, for example, in the United States, back to the one that we had in 2003, there were actually zero deaths from that United States. So I think that already the Western African 
played is, you know, has a lower fatality rate. Some people are quoting from the CDC around 3.5%, but I think it may be actually even lower than that with appropriate supportive care. So I think that that at least is, is reassuring. And I think, I know we'll talk about it later, but I think another really reassuring thing is the fact that we already have a vaccine that works. So I think it is important to think of how different the situation is than SARS-CoV-2, you know, just two years ago. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the reason why we wanted to have an episode of this for dialogues and for our dermatology community is because, you know, we know that there's a lot of cutaneous manifestations of SARS-CoV-2, but none of them are necessarily pathognomonic, I would say. And feel free to disagree. You are the expert. But monkeypox is a very, (laughs) very... Right. But like monkeypox is a very dermatologic disease. Like it certainly has a very striking skin exam. And so I think as we as dermatologists are going to, if not already, will very soon be called in or to be asked about whether or not our patients might be afflicted with this virus. And so in thinking about that, I'd love to transition to talk a little bit about the disease course and the exam itself. And so maybe before we get to the skin exam, what do monkeypox patients start with? How do they first present with their symptoms? And what's the incubation period? What should we know about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I will say, Stephen, I completely agree. I think that with dermatologists are going to be really the front line because patients, one of the most characteristic things that they're presenting with is a rash. So this isn't so much that something else happens first. You know, with SARS-CoV-2, a lot of the times a respiratory illness might happen first and then we get the rash. And as you said, it's not pathognomonic, it's basically almost like SARS-CoV-2 is the great mimicker and can look like lots of different things. Here, in contrast with monkeypox, you know, the rash is one of the first things that happens and it is, you know, quite characteristic. Not to say that there aren't other things in our differential and that you can't confuse it for other things, Mm -hmm. but there is a characteristic monkeypox rash. So I think that that is absolutely true that dermatologists, we really are kind of on the front line of this and, and that's really important because we do have a role in actually stopping outbreaks in our own community. So to answer your question about the illness you know, progression. So first of all, it has a relatively long incubation period. And what I mean by that is from when you're exposed to when you're developing your symptoms is actually, you know, a pretty long time. The full range that the CDC quotes is between five to 21 days, but on average, it's usually between seven and 14 days. But if you think about that, like if you're trying to remember something that happened two weeks ago and what you were doing and who you were in contact with, you know, that's a pretty long time. So it does have this long incubation period. One positive of that is that it does give us an opportunity potentially to intervene and vaccinate close contact before they get sick. So that's that's kind of a, a small silver lining to that. But in terms of the typical course, what happens is after you're exposed and after this kind of generally seven to 14 day period, but as long as five to 21 days, you get a fever. And then within usually around one to five days of the fever, you can start developing the rash. And some other things may come with the fever, for example, lymphadenopathy, fatigue, sore throat, but it seems that the fever is usually the most typical. And then comes the rash. Now, what I'll describe is the kind of typical rash. And I will say that what we're seeing or what's really being reported internationally from this outbreak might be a little bit different, but at least the typical progression was that it would appear as macules for one to two days, then turn into papules for a few days, followed by vesicles, and then ultimately these kind of hard pustules for five to seven days that I think is really what people would consider the characteristic rash. And then they have crusting and scabbing and they kind of eventually will fall off and crust over and that resolution links up with when you are no longer infectious. And we can talk a little bit, I think, about how it might be different in this current outbreak, but that's the classic monkeypox you know, rash that you've probably seen pictures of during training. Right. Absolutely. And so let's get to that. Let's talk about, I mean, 
as someone who does a lot of inpatient dermatology, we are understandably getting a lot of questions of consult questions that are rule out monkeypox, you know, and I think it's difficult because it's a virus that not all of us have seen very frequently. And I've done my hardest to try to educate myself on what the typical exam is, as you said, the, the kind of interesting progression through primary lesions from macule to papule to vesicle to pustule, and finally to kind of crusting over. But there are reports from the CDC about these atypical solitary lesions. The one that I read talked about a solitary lesion kind of in the inguinal area. What are the other atypical presentations that we should be aware of? You know, I think that's exactly it, Stephen. The reports that we've seen, particularly coming out of the United Kingdom and Spain, and so I will say actually just to take a moment to give you a sense of like the current stats. So as of today, and we're recording this on June 9th, and I'm always very aware of when we're recording things because by the time this airs, probably the situation will be completely different. So half of what we say might no longer be correct, which is what happened when we did COVID work all the time. So I'm just very aware that we are, are here today and, you know, early June. So by the time you're listening to this, this is, you know, the situation will have, will have changed. As of right now, we have over 1,300 cases around the world, 1,356 in 31 countries. And the areas with the largest outbreaks as of right now are the United Kingdom and Spain. United Kingdom has 321 cases. Spain has 259 and Portugal follows closely with 209. So a lot of the reports that we're getting with more detail about the particular presentations are coming out of the UK and Spain just because they have these larger clusters um, of infections. And so the reports from both of those countries are that we are seeing some of these you know, more atypical presentations where you're just seeing, for example, like you mentioned, one or two or three lesions in the groin. And I, you know, I have to admit, prior to this, if someone comes in with a single solitary papule in the groin, monkeypox would not have been a my differential. So I think that we normally don't think of monkeypox as necessarily starting in the groin. And we also don't think of it as like one lesion. We're classically taught that monkeypox is kind of this whole, you know, can involve really the whole body can be face, can be hands, can be trunk, and that we're also taught that the lesions progress kind of at the same time across the spectrum, that they might kind of all go from, you know, a vesicle to a pustule around the same time. And I think now if you're only seeing like one to three lesions in the groin, I think that's going to be a little harder to recognize. So I think it's just important that we have it on our differential and that we're aware that this is happening and that, you know, in the United States, like this could walk into your clinic. Right. I think that's very true. It could certainly walk into your clinic. You could certainly get called for a consult, but at least my take on it, and I, I hope you agree with my take on it, is that as the consulting dermatologist, like, you know, common things are still common and monkeypox is still relatively rare compared to a lot of the other diseases that we see on a normal basis. And so a lot of times it's a, I think for myself, at least, I just want to make sure it's on my differential, but I'm still going to be much more likely to diagnose something else that might be vesicular, something else that might be a solitary lesion in the inguinal groin area. Understanding though, that there is this kind of specter of monkeypox that's lingering. To be honest, when I'm consulted for monkeypox, often the emergency room has already sent the monkeypox test before I've even gotten a chance to see the patient, but we're there to kind of help them risk stratify in terms of isolation protocols and all those kinds of things while we wait for the test to come back. I don't know, would you agree that that's an okay approach at least from us in the States where we don't have a ton of cases, well, hopefully ever, but yet? Yeah, I think that's totally appropriate. I mean, we always say, right, when you hear hoofbeats, you know, think horses, not right. zebras, and certainly things like molluscum, things like HSV, things like syphilis are still going to be more common than monkeypox. 
Um, that being said, I think we just need to kind of watch where we go. Um, right. If you look at the trajectory right now of this outbreak, it's a little hard to know, like how close are we to this peak? We're right now, we're still in that kind of steep part of the curve of cases going up. So right now in the United States, as of today, confirmed reported cases were at 44. You know, just a few days ago when I looked, it was like 20. So, you know, we're still in this like rapid incline, but I would completely agree with 44 cases is still not that many in the United States. So I think, you know, over the coming weeks, we'll kind of see how rapidly this is or isn't, and my hope isn't, you know, I hope that you are listening to this podcast and you're like, great, this is, you know, kind of fizzled out. That would be wonderful. But I think we're just prepared in case, it, you know, it doesn't go that direction. But I would completely agree. Things like, you know, molluscum syphilis, HSV, those are all going to be more common. But I think just having it on your radar and having a little, having your spidey sense tingling a little bit right. in terms of monkeypox is helpful. Yeah, I know. I totally agree. I think having it on the differential, making sure you don't forget about that possibility and really testing for it if it's if it's a possibility and perhaps if no other clear answer kind of rises to the top of your differential. The molluscum point is well taken too. You know, I speaking with others who may have seen a case, really they kind of describe it almost as like giant what you would expect molluscum to look like, but just giant lesions instead. So I think it's fascinating in getting to exam and in getting to that part of it. I think before we talk a little bit about how to test for it, you know, when we're about to walk into the room and maybe for the dermatologist who doesn't work at an academic center where there are very strict infection control guidelines, what should we be thinking about in terms of PPE and protecting ourselves when we're about to go into a potential monkeypox patient's room? Yeah, absolutely. So I think to think the way to think about it is how is monkeypox spread? So monkeypox actually has several different modes of transmission. So one of them, probably the most frequent, though we don't actually know exactly in this outbreak, but probably the most frequent is through direct contact with the lesions. And so it can be either direct contact with the lesions or direct contact with infected body fluids. So that could be fluid from a pustule. And we've actually found most recently reports from Italy have found positive samples and four semen samples from patients with monkeypox. It's possible that there's actually direct possible infectious route from other body fluids. I think that's still, we're going to be learning a lot more about that in the coming days. So direct contact with lesions is one. There is also a possibility of transmission through respiratory droplets, but unlike SARS-CoV-2 where, you know, it's, it's really, you could transmit it relatively easily through the respiratory pathway. This is much harder. You have to really be kind of in much closer contact with larger respiratory droplets. And then finally, also contact with potentially um, infected bedding and bedclothes and sheets and things like that. So I think it's helpful to think about how it's transmitted before we think about how to protect ourselves. So in terms of current CDC guidance, in terms of what PPE you would be wearing, and, and hopefully you have this on hand because it's very similar to what you might have been wearing for COVID. So right now it's a NIOSH-approved N95. It's eye protection. It is a gown and gloves. I do think that I, mean, I think there's a lot of questions about the N95. Is it really necessary? Could it be a hospital-grade mask? I mean, I think we've dealt with a lot of these questions mm. you know, over the last two years regarding COVID. I think right now they are saying NIOSH N95 because there is the theoretical risk of transmission in terms of respiratory droplets. I think that's a little probably lower risk. I don't think we're aware, at least even unless you're aware of any hospital transmission to healthcare workers yet in this outbreak. I have not heard of any. I don't know if you have. No, you're right. I haven't heard of any, but I think that gets a little bit into what you kind of alluded to, which is the long incubation period and the possibility for vaccinating close contacts, which includes potential exposures and healthcare workers. Do you mind touching on that a little bit in terms of what that might look like, or maybe like what the prophylaxis might look like for monkeypox, or maybe what the therapy might look like for monkeypox? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a lot there. So I think that um, the general thought is that personal protective equipment, PPE, really should be considered protective in most circumstances. So unless you have a really, really close contact, you're likely going to be considered, if you are you know, wearing appropriate PPE as a healthcare worker, you're likely going to be considered like a low risk. And we talked a little bit about what that, that PPE is. However, if there is a concern for higher risk exposure, then there is the option about being vaccinated after exposure to monkeypox. And I think what's so you know, interesting and, and positive silver lining about this is that unlike COVID, where if you were exposed to COVID you know, on a Saturday, you getting vaccinated on a Sunday would do really nothing for you. Right. Like it's already that kind of situation's already passed. In monkeypox, if you are exposed and then you get vaccinated, it actually reduces the risk that you would get monkeypox. And if it's later in the process, like more like a week out, um, it may not reduce your risk of getting monkeypox, but it will reduce the severity of disease. So I think what we have right now for contacts, close contacts of monkeypox cases is what we're calling a ring of vaccination. So it's kind of a ring of vaccination around those individuals in order to really try to prevent, you know, further spread. And so, for example, with hospital infections, you'll note, and I know we had this experience, you know, locally, that not every healthcare worker who is exposed to a case will get vaccinated, but the ones who had a really what would be considered like a higher risk exposure um, would be potentially offered a vaccine. And so I would definitely encourage you to talk to your local hospital infection control, or if you're not in a hospital-based situation, you might be at one-off clinic, um, really calling your state, um, your state lab is really the way you're going to go because they're going to discuss with you, you know, how you want to sample for monkeypox. Um, if there's a risk of exposure, they're going to talk you through that and what level of exposure it was. And just to give you an example, um, the CDC would define like a high-risk contact as unprotected contact with the skin or mucous membranes, or a lesion or body fluids of a patient, or, and they would consider intermediate risk being less than six feet of an unmasked patient for more than three hours. So you can see it has to be a pretty, you know, substantial contact um, to be considered um, a contact. And then, for example, um, they say that post-exposure prophylaxis is not recommended for low or uncertain risk, which would be, for example, healthcare providers going into a room without eye protection. So just if you just didn't have eye protection, that would still be considered pretty low risk. And I think we should probably talk a little bit about vaccines, about the different vaccine types, because I think this is really kind of confusing. And I have to be honest, I haven't really thought a lot about smallpox vaccines, because I think we're kind of lucky that we haven't had to think a lot about smallpox vaccines. And so there is what we consider kind of the historical smallpox vaccine that has been around for many, many years and was really important in the eradication of smallpox. I think that there are certainly challenges with that more historical vaccine, because it had a potential risk for side effects where it's an actual live replicative vaccine, which means that it can spread, for example, in atopic dermatitis. You can actually have smallpox type lesions that can spread in a patient with atopic dermatitis. And so there's certainly some issues and also issues about that being offered, for example, to pregnant women. The newer vaccine called Genios, which is actually approved for monkeypox, is a non-replicative vaccine. So it's still a live virus vaccine. It's not totally dead virus, but it's non-replicative. So it means it doesn't really spread um, in the same way. So it does seem like from our initial data, this one is safer. The U.S. has large stockpiles of the older vaccine, and I would say, you know, fewer stockpiles of the newer vaccine. So it would definitely depend on your local state department, potentially not state, actually not state department, but your local health department um, for your state, what people are being offered. I think a lot of people are being offered in this ring of vaccination, the Genios vaccine, the newer vaccine. But I think it's just helpful to be aware that there are different types of smallpox vaccines and that they have different side effect profiles and different risk profiles. Great. No, thank you for kind of delineating the differences. You know, in talking about 
our state health departments and the state lab. That's obviously because the monkeypox PCR test that we usually run to make a diagnosis is not going to be available at most Quest labs or, you know, most like standard labs or hospital labs. From what I can understand, most of that's being run at state labs across the country. Do you have any tips or tricks in terms of thinking about testing for monkeypox if you suspect it or if you want to at least eliminate it from a differential? You know, my understanding is it's PCR from one of the lesions, but any tips in terms of who to contact in terms of making sure that that's done in the right way? Yeah, absolutely. I would recommend if you have a patient, in, I mean, ideally before you even have a patient is just calling your state lab and just finding out what their process is, because unfortunately, I wish I could offer advice that would make sense to you across right. the whole country, but it's very variable based on your state, how they want to process it and where you're supposed to send the sample and how you're supposed to send the sample. So the best thing I can do in terms of kind of offering universal advice is to say either if you're, if you feel that your population is kind of a high risk population that you might be seeing a case, you know, calling your state department, advanced, state health department advanced, just saying, hey, if I get one of these cases, you know, what do you want me to do? The other option, of course, is if you, given that that's pretty rare, if you wait until you have a patient in front of you who you potentially are concerned about that you want to test for, I would actually call that state health department before I did the swab of the lesion, just so that you're collecting it in a way that they want you to collect it, and they'll give you specific instructions. So usually this is being tested for in state labs. The state lab will then usually get confirmation through the CDC. In some cases, if there's not a state lab available, it's possible to make it directly to CDC. So I would definitely reach out to your local state health department who will have guidelines on this before you do the swab. I don't think the technique is going to be wildly different from any of the techniques that we're used to in terms of you know swabbing, for example, like the base of an HSV vesicle. But I think it's helpful just to figure out the local guidelines of how they want you to send it before, just so that you don't have to like swab the patient and have the patient come back and do a different swab. Right. And, you know, I think in terms of thinking about this whole, the monkeypox kind of disease process, we as dermatologists really have such a critical role in hopefully making the diagnosis if necessary, or at least eliminating monkeypox as a possible differential diagnosis so that we can focus on whatever ailment the patient might have. And so I do think that our role is very helpful in this case in terms of helping to curb spread. But I wanted to touch very briefly on therapy, because while we might not be the infectious disease consultant who's deciding on ultimate therapy for our patients, in my mind, supportive care is probably really kind of the most important thing for our monkeypox patients. But what else to our colleagues are we doing for our monkeypox patients after they've been diagnosed? Yeah, absolutely. I think right now it's important to know that there's not a fully FDA-approved treatment for monkeypox. There's not something you're necessarily going to be reaching off the shelf. If, however, you are taking care of a monkeypox patient in collaboration with an infectious disease team, things that you might see coming you know, across would be some of these antiviral medications, which are some of which are approved for human smallpox and that are now getting, for example, expanded access investigational new drug protocols which is actually a really mouthful, but that's actually a thing. It's called an EAIND, Expanded Access Investigational New Drug Protocol. So these antivirals, for example, one is called Tecavirmat, and another one, for example, is called Brincidofavir. So these are two example antiviral medications that are not currently FDA approved for smallpox, but one of them has this particular status of investigational new drug, and the other one I think is being evaluated for the status of investigational new drug. So these are, I'm not saying that these are like approved and that you're just going to be reaching for these, but people are investigating their use in monkeypox. Also just sidofavir, which is something that's been around for a long time, is also being kind of evaluated for orthopox for uses during the orthopox outbreak. And then the other thing that you may hear about is um, vaccinia immune globulin intravenous, which is VIGIV. 
for the treatment of vaccinia vaccination complications. That's been used in the past for patients who have had this historical smallpox vaccine and have developed vaccinia and is now being looked at um, also for treatment of orthopox viruses. So I think a lot coming down the pike, nothing that's you know completely clear that it's being used universally in these patients, but um, these are the drug names that you might hear. Great. Thank you so much. And in, in terms of thinking about what's coming down the pike, one thing is that our academy, the American Academy of Dermatology, it has also formed a monkeypox task force, which you sit on. And so I'm just curious, what what direction or what do we have in store from the task force or what are you guys working on for all of us as dermatologists through the AED task force on monkeypox? Yeah, thanks, Stephen. So I'm certainly honored to participate in this task force and which is being led like the COVID task force by George Haruza, who's our prior president of the AAD. And I think really our task here is to just provide information and really collate the latest information that is available on monkeypox to share it with our membership. And so we currently have a new member-facing document that really summarizes, you know, a lot of the frequently asked questions that you might have about monkeypox, instructions on how to contact your local state health department, what we're seeing visually with these cases worldwide. A lot of the information actually just presented, you know, as part of this dialogue, so you would find in that member-facing document, which is available on the member portal. We are also working on public-facing documentation that you might be able to share with patients who have a lot of concern. You know, I think a lot of us are faced with a situation where we have patients who are very concerned, they hear about a new outbreak, and someone who you've been taking care of with eczema for 10 years comes in and points to their eczema and says, I think this is monkeypox. You know, and so I think figuring out the ways to talk to our patients is really important. And so I think we try to address a little bit more about some information that you can share that either our patients can read directly or that you can share with your patients. I think there are a lot of also great resources on the CDC in terms of frequently asked questions. There's a whole section on frequently asked questions by providers on the CDC website, which is great. And then JAMA has just come out with a series of kind of frequently asked questions for patients, which is also very helpful. So we link to all of those resources in our documentation so that um, you can kind of read what we've written. And really also we kind of collate other resources around the globe that would be helpful for you to see. Wonderful. Well, on behalf of the specialty, I would just say thank you to you and, of course, everyone else on the task force who's keeping us informed and making sure that our academy is informing its members and the general public about monkeypox because it is as of today, even though there's only 44 cases in the U.S., it's still something that I'm sure people think about since it's in the news. It's something that we may potentially have to deal with in the future. So thank you for that. But also thank you, Esther, for joining me today on Dialogues in Dermatology in thinking about monkeypox virus and helping to disseminate that information to our listeners and to the AED membership. Before I let you go, any parting words of wisdom or anything else you wanted to fill in that we didn't get a chance to cover today? Well, thank you, Stephen. I just want to say this is really a team effort, and and I'm just one voice of this larger task force. And certainly we know there's a lot of clinicians on the front line that are seeing these cases. And so I want to thank all of you for all of your efforts and also sharing information back with us once you have seen a case. We certainly hope you don't and that we hope that this outbreak is contained. But um, if you do see a case, certainly reach out to us on the task force. We're really interested to hear about what you're seeing on the ground. And so, you know, a thank you to you for inviting me and and for having this discussion. And I just wanted to share um, in terms of the website for reaching the American Academy of Dermatology information on monkeypox. It's in the member section of the website. So it's aad.org backslash member. And then under clinical quality clinical care and monkeypox. However, if you just want to Google monkeypox AAD, that is probably the 
fastest way um, to reach our information. Uh, right now we have a piece out called Recognizing Monkeypox, and then we have a different section on additional resources as well as frequently asked questions. And we'll continue to increase um, the availability of information of monkeypox on the AAD website as further information comes out. Well, thank you so much. Thanks again to you, Dr. Freeman, for joining us today and helping to disseminate information to all of our listeners. And thank you to all of our listeners and the AED for paying attention for all of us to this important outbreak and for tuning in today to get some more information. Until next time, this has been another episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.